So it's, um, it's always an interesting time in the church when we face a day like Mother's Day. For me, before I get into the message, I just wanted to address that a little bit. Um, because I'm always sensitive to, to what people are going through in the room. And so um, I know that there may be women in the room who would love to be a mother and have never been blessed with that opportunity. I know that there are people in the room who have recently lost a mother or who are dealing with the grief of, of, of um, losing a mother in the, near, in the near term and just shortly uh, in the past. And so I know also there are some in the room who are, are dealing with sickness and illness and, and maybe your mothers are, are struggling and, and are hurting. And it may be for those of you maybe who are in my stage of life where you now become almost the caretaker of your parents, like you're, you're thinking in those terms. And so things are transitioning for how you approach motherhood. And, and so I just want to take a moment, I think, to, to pray through that. Um, as a church, as we celebrate those who are mothers in the room and are thankful for them, uh, I think before we get into the message today, I would just like to take a time to just focus on that uh, together as a church family, to be sensitive and cognizant of the emotions and the struggles that might be going in the room, as well as those who are celebrating this morning. Uh, let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning uh, so thankful for the gift of joining you in your creative work for the producing of more human beings uh, as according to your command to be fruitful and multiply. We also know, Father, that, that there's a deep desire within women to, to be mothers. And so for those who, who haven't been blessed in that way, Father, we pray that you would um, give them that, that blessing that they desire, or if that's just not meant for them, Father, that you would give them the peace to understand the calling that's been placed upon them, Father. And just pray for the rest of us to be sensitive to those emotions and those needs and those uh, potential hurts there. So, Father, we, we understand that the, the, some of us are in the room who are maybe be dealing with, may, may be dealing with uh, the personal grief and the real intimate grief of losing a mother uh, in a not-too-distant past. And so I, I just pray um, for those in the room who are dealing with that to be comforted, uh, to be able to reflect and to be thankful for their presence here on this earth because of the work of their mother. I pray, Father, for um, the mothers in the room just to be encouraged in that work. Father, to be understanding of the calling of, of motherhood in Scripture and what it means to be a mother who is not just pointing her kids in the, the rights and the wrongs and the health and the safety, but also pointing their, their children towards you, towards faith towards an understanding and a, and a purpose in your kingdom. We pray, Father, that you give us all as we, um, maybe even in some in the room, women in the room are, are mothering to other children, that we um, encourage that and we pay attention within the church family to the needs and the encouragement that women can give across uh, to children. So, Father, we just, we're thankful for the gift of motherhood, for the calling in the Garden of Eden, Father, you, you saw that Adam was not good alone by himself, and so you gave him a helper, somebody to fulfill um, the, the humanity that you have designed. And so we know that together, men and women create um, or, or represent your creation in its fullness. So, Father, we thank you for that um, calling of what it means to be a mother uh, and to be motherly and, and the need for that in the spiritual development of human beings. Father, this morning, as we turn our attention to your word, we pray that you open our hearts to hear from you, to hear directly from your spirit and, and your desire and your will for us in the midst of what it is that we study this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so we're in the middle of uh, a series called uh, Philippians. 
why do we call it Philippians? Because we're studying the book of Philippians. It's not really deep, just so you understand kind of where we're going with that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to be preaching through the book of Philippians now through the end of July. And so it gives us an opportunity over about 14 weeks to really examine this book in detail. We're going to answer three questions off of that. Who are we? What do we do? And how do we do it? And just to give you a little bit of background, some of you have been here through the whole series. This is the third message in the series. If you missed the other two, you can go to our website and go check out the old videos. We now have those messages on podcasts. So if you like to jog and you want to listen to a message without having to look at me, I totally understand that. That's perfectly fine with me. Gives you an opportunity just to listen. Um, So if you're into podcasts, we now have those available. So you can go check that out as well. Um, So just to give you a little background for those of you who haven't been here for the previous two weeks, what I'm going to try to do is kind of give this background maybe this week, maybe next week, but after that I won't give it anymore. Um, So by that time, maybe I will have hit most of our congregation as you guys travel to the beach and back uh, this spring. All right, so just to let you know, like Paul is writing to the church of Philippi. What do we know about Philippi? Philippi is a city that was named after Philip. Philip named it after himself. Pretty awesome that you get the power and authority to name a city after yourself. It was a city in the region of Macedonia, um, and it was a place, modern-day Greece, it was a place that's kind of centrally located between Asia and Europe. It was the place um, where... um, people that were traveling across the trade route would kind of stop off. And so if you were selling something, if you were a merchant of any kind, Philippi was a great place to live. Uh, During uh, Roman times, a little bit later, um, there were Roman soldiers that would retire to the area. So by the time of Paul's writing, by the time of Jesus' day, the city of Philippi was a very Roman-ish place. In other words, most language spoken there was Latin. There was a lot of Roman influence in this city of Philippi. It was the first place, if we want to kind of go to the church itself and to the letter, what do we know about this letter that Paul's writing to this church? Uh, Philippi was the first place in Europe where the church existed. The first baptism of the church in Europe occurred in this, in this church of Philippi. So it's a very central church to the movement of Christianity. Um, and I think those people if they could see what Christianity has become in Europe today, would be horrified uh, at, at the, the state of Christianity. So we're going to move on. Like, so there again, three questions I'm going to ask. I'm going to answer um, who are we, what do we do, and how do we do it are the three sections that I see as we define the book of Philippians. So this morning, uh, as we think about the main point today, I want you to think about this. The followers of Jesus are sold out to the mission of the church. Followers, followers of Jesus are sold out to the mission of the church. Now, I've encountered people in my ministry who claim to be followers of Jesus but aren't connected to the church at all. In, in, in any congregation at all, they don't interact with any congregation. They may um, read some things occasionally. or They're, they're, they're involved kind of in their own mindset about what it means to follow Jesus, or they at least claim it peripherally, but they don't have any real deep connection to the mission of the church. They're not on mission with any local body, local congregation. And I think very clearly that we can see when Paul writes to the church in Philippi, he's claiming something himself and encouraging them with something else too, this idea that we are all on mission, right? We're committed to the mission of the church together if we're followers of Jesus. So we're going to pick up in the last half of verse 18 uh, verse 18b all the way through verse 26 is where we're going to be reading today. Paul writes this. He says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed 
but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and in the joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So we know that when Paul writes this letter, he's in prison in Rome. If you want to read about that imprisonment, my my thought is, and there's some debate, but my thought is that this imprisonment in Rome is his first imprisonment. If you go read kind of the end of the, chap, end of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8 in particular is when he lands in Rome and he's in prison. This prison is kind of more like a house arrest. He's in change. He's guarded on a regular basis. People can come and see him and experience him and encounter him. And so he's actually, when he first gets there, he invites all the Jewish leaders to come and he begins to talk to them about, hey guys, I'm here because some of our brothers, some of these other Jews have accused me and they're trying to get me put to death. And so I'm here because of that. I end up having to appeal to Caesar and that's why I'm here in Rome. And so like he's kind of appealing to them and he's sharing the gospel. People are coming to see him. Other believers who are already living there are coming to see him. And so Paul's able to interact with people while he's in prison, but he's still in prison. So when he writes, I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Christ, that this will turn out for my deliverance, right? He understands that he's convinced of his impending freedom because of what's taking place. All right. So key point number one is this, is that we are people of prayer. Are you a person of prayer? And what does that look like? Paul says this. um, He says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, through your prayers. So it's it's very clear that Paul is expecting, anticipating, believing, is convinced that they're praying for him. Now, There's 7 billion people on the face of this planet. And every single one of those 7 billion people will have some struggle in their life. In some way, they're going to experience grief or hurt or hunger or oppression or something going on in their life. Every single person, no matter how much we want to protect our children, no matter how much we want to preserve them from any pain, any struggle, any grief, the very fact that we're loving them that much is going to bring them grief because when we die, they're going to grieve. Like, there's, just be honest, like, they're, they're, every single life is going to deal with some kind of grief. And it's in those moments, oftentimes, and most of the times, only in those moments where we appeal to God in prayer. Certainly, this is one of those moments that Paul's expecting them to be praying on his behalf. Now, I think that prayer is very clearly an empowerment to the work of the church. And I think oftentimes we see prayer as an empowerment to my need, a moment for me to get God to come and take action in my life to fix something that's broken and to fix something oftentimes that I've broken myself. And we want God to come in and to fix something. Uh, Larry Crabb has written a book on prayer. and And he talks about like we sometimes look at God as this big vending machine in the sky. And we just put in our prayer and we get out what we want and then we go about our business. 
And if we don't get what we want, we start banging on the side of the machine so we can get what we want, right? We get angry at God. God, I prayed about that. I prayed for that to happen. I prayed for this to happen. And it didn't happen. I'm mad at you. And so we act like that prayer is just an access for us to get what we want from God. The truth is, let's think about this. Like, why, why did God give us the ability to pray to him? Do you think he needs our input? You, like, you think like he's sitting there waiting on the edge of his seat to figure out what I think about something so he can take action? My dog doesn't even listen to me. I think God's not going to listen to me. Like, like God doesn't need my input. And like sometimes we act like God needs us desperately. What the truth is that it's a miracle of relationship and love and grace and mercy that through the death of Jesus on the cross, you and I can come to God intimately and call him Father, Abba Father, and and know that we're his children and actually pray in fellowship and relationship with him. Because God originally created humanity in the garden. You go read the, the book of Genesis, man, Adam and Eve are running around the garden. They're having good. They're naked. Everything's great, right? It's awesome. There's no shame. There's no, there's no like, division between them, the two of them. There's no division between them and God. Everything is perfect. Like They are the perfect glorification of God and his creation. Until sin comes into that. And then everything is tainted from that point forward. See, the reality is that that God created us to live in relationship with him. And so even in the brokenness of our world, God still gives us access to him. And it's not just so that we can manipulate him and get what we want. It's so that we can be in relationship with him. Now, I've taught this in the past uh, through specific message series. did a whole message series on a couple times about prayer. And I I think there are seven different pathways that we can identify in Scripture of what prayer looks like. If we're going to be a people of prayer, we need to understand this. So we need to get out of our mind that prayer is only a way for us to access God and get what we want when things are tough. Prayer is so much more than that, all right? So number one, prayer is about connection. It's about us relating to God. It's about us spending time with God. The relationships in your life that are most important to you, you make time for them. You invest time. Some of you, like the most important relationship in your life right now is your marriage. And so you'll go to conferences, you'll read books, you'll do all kinds of stuff to maintain that relationship. You'll do date night, you'll do all kinds of things to intentionally maintain the health of that relationship. How much effort and energy are you putting into your relationship with God? And I'm just going to be honest with you, like you're trying to, you want to have a good marriage, then you make sure you give time to God so your relationship with him can be good. Because if it ain't right, then your marriage is not going to be right. I can just tell you. The best pathway to a healthy relationship in your marriage is a healthy relationship individually that you both have with the Father. Changes everything. Connection is so important. Praise. How many times do you spend, like, time just praising God in prayer? Just have a time of prayer where you don't don't ask for anything. You're just going to praise God. Just praise him. That would be different for most of us. Do you ever come to God and repent? Scripture is very clear that we should be a people who operate in repentance, that we understand. Repentance basically means I acknowledge my sin before you, God. I confess my sin, and I ask for your help and your encouragement to turn and go in a different direction. 
Do you ever come to God and say, God, I, I know that pride has just really been driving me in this, and I'm sorry, I, I want you to help me with this. Do you ever confess to God like the things that you know are sinful? To do that, you have to be doing some introspection. You have to be able to identify those things that are sinful in your life, to go to God and repent. But repentance is such an important part of prayer. Sometimes we just need a revelation from God. In other words, we need God to speak into something. Like we, there's a big decision on the, on the table before us. There's a big moment that's coming. There's something that we're uncertain of, and we need God to reveal to us the truth of the path for him that he would choose for us. And so we pray for a revelation, and we pray, and we ask God to give us his instruction. Jesus, when he went up on the mountain, he spent all night praying to God, praying to the Father before he came down and he appointed the apostles. He was interacting with the Father as a for revelation for who were to be those people. How much time do we give God to speak into those important moments of our life? Or are we just so busy doing our pro and con sheets? We're, doing, um, we're asking all kinds of people, reading articles and stuff, but we never take a moment to pray to God to say, God, what would you have to say about this? And then there are moments where we pray for intercession. This is where we pray on behalf of somebody else, not for us, where we pray on behalf of somebody else, somebody who's in need. And when I say intercession, it's not just because somebody's sick and we pray for them to be healed. It can be that somebody's lost and doesn't know Jesus and you pray for their salvation. There's a lot of different reasons we pray for other people, but is your prayer life filled with prayers for you, about you, or is your prayer life filled with prayers for others and about others? And where should it be? Paul's saying, I'm sure that you're praying for me, you great people of the church of Philippi, whom I love, right? Because he trusts in them. He loves them. He knows their hearts that they will be praying for him. And then there's sometimes where we just ask God to do something. We need God to intervene. We need God to take action. We need, we need God to move. And so we're just praying for God to move, not for us necessarily. Sometimes we see injustices in the world, and we want God to move against poverty, to move against abortion, to move against all the things that our culture is pushing, this, these agendas that are against the plan and the program of God. And we pray for God to move. We pray for a movement of the gospel, for God to take action in our church and in our community and in in our country and in our world, we pray for God to go to work against something, for something. And then sometimes we question God. It's okay to, to come to God in prayer and say, God, I don't really understand this. I need you to help me with this. We can question God. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Eden, he said, Father, take this cup for me. But not my will, but yours. And so we always pray with that. Like, God, I don't understand why am I having to do this? Why am I having to go through this? Or why is so-and-so having to deal with this? Why is this happening? Can you explain this to me, God? Deal with God in prayer. We need to be a people of prayer. Paul is assured of that, of the Philippian church. So if we're going to be who we're to be in Jesus, we are to be a people of prayer. Key point number two is we are people of courage. Paul says this. He says, it is my eager expectation, hope, that I will, be, I will not be, be at all ashamed, but that with what? Full courage, now and as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. You see, Paul is facing execution. There's a potential that Caesar will deny his appeal and he'll be executed for the accusations that were made against him by the Jews in Jerusalem. 
And yet, even in the midst of that, he's, he's like expecting that the courage is going to come. So he's saying that we need to be people of courage. Now, I think let's think about this idea of courage. Because I think sometimes somebody being courageous has been mislabeled in our culture. Sometimes we'll label stuff as courageous when it's more perseverance. Perseverance is important, but courage is intimately connected to fear. And fear basically is a filter in our life for what we're going to do. Fear is a filter for action. And courage sometimes is moving when fear says stay put. Let's think about this. Paul says that that with Christ, like to be with Christ is far better, but to remain is necessary. So to be with Christ in his mind is far better. That's a gain. That's far better. But to remain is necessary. Sometimes courage is doing what's necessary instead of what's far better. Because sometimes for us, being in a place where our fears don't work, right, that our fears are, are, uh, um, are put on the side, that's better for us. It's far better for us to be in a place of safety and comfort where we push our fears away. And if I just stay here, then I'll be safe. If I don't go, or if I don't say this, or I don't have to go through this, or I don't have to face this, then everything will be okay. And I'm just going to stay in this place of comfort because that is far better. Paul, in his mind and in his heart, thinks being with Jesus is far better than anything he might have to face in this world. But he's identifying what is necessary, and he says... Um, he's begging for the courage to stand up, even in the face of potential execution. You see, I want, to, I want you to think about this in the terms of fear. So let's think about this in an acrostic. So what does fear do to us? Oftentimes, fear can be crippling. It can keep us from moving forward. It can keep us from taking action. It can keep us from getting involved. It can keep us from doing the things that we know that clearly God has called us to do. So when fear arises, let's just take the opportunity to face every appropriate response. Face every, 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 every appropriate response. You see, fear will help us to identify the one response that keeps us in our comfort place. If we're not careful, fear will cripple us and push us to the place of comfort. And comfort is not where we're supposed to be as the people of God. I was given this book recently. It's called Kingdom First, Starting Churches That Shape Movements. And um, I haven't read the book, honestly. Um, but what I did read is the foreword of the book written by a man by the name of Ed Stetzer. Uh, he's a prolific writer and church planter in our culture. Um, um, and I love what he says about this, this idea of a kingdom first movement within the church. He says, in order to accomplish that, he said, we need unreasonable men and women. Are you unreasonable? Some of you would say yes. Did any spouse look at the other person when I said, are you unreasonable? You're in trouble. All right. As Tessa writes, he says, the the comfortable do not create movements. Instead, they originate with those who are desperate, demanding something different. Movements comes from those who are more committed than they are now. George Bernard Shaw, Irish dramatist and socialist, once said that the reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. Stesser writes, he is right in, in a way. I'd say that when women and men allow their faith to be tamed by the world, they end up with a nice religion, 
uninterested in the big issues like global evangelization, world poverty, and injustice. That's why I love passionate people. We need more, not less. What Stetzer is saying is that we need to step forward with boldness and courage. We need to identify what are all the appropriate responses to our fear, and we need to take a step forward because the kingdom calls us to that, and the mission of the church demands it. What are you afraid of? Some of you are afraid of spiders. There was actually a study done. I was reading up on this this week. There was actually a study done where, where uh, scientists took infants, like babies that couldn't even identify, like couldn't even talk or whatever yet, right? And, and these infants were being held by their parents, and they showed them pictures of different things. And whenever they showed those babies, and they were measuring the, the dilation of the pupils, the size of the pupils. And so whenever they showed the babies a picture of a spider, <laughs> whenever they showed them a picture of a snake, Bigger than any response ever was a spider, though. Now, somebody can tell you that the tarantula is not going to bite you and that you can hold the tarantula and it's going to be okay. Does that knowledge change your interaction at all with the tarantula? Not me, bro. How about you hold it and prove it to me? <laughs> now, fear is a good thing. And sometimes, like, fear can, like I said, fear is the filter for life. Like, it's Mother's Day. Let's be honest. Like, sometimes we need to be afraid of mom. If you think about it, like, mom sometimes might come in from a bad day at work or she might have had a stressful day at home and things have not gone well. Maybe the, maybe the, the, the stove is, is, like, acting up and it's not working. Whatever might have happened, her boss might have been horrible at her that day. Maybe she's mad at dad because that might happen once or twice. And she comes into the room and she's giving you that look and you just know that there's an evaluation of the house that's about to happen. And then no matter what has happened in that house, you're going to come up short. And she's going to come to you and she's going to say, I need you to go clean your room. Now, in my days as a young, smart, alec teenager, there were a lot of these thoughts that would pop into my head in those moments. I would think stuff like, you want my room clean? Why don't you go clean it? Now, I never said anything out loud like that. Why? Because fear is an appropriate filter, right? Fear helps me to know what to say and what not to say. There are moments where you just know. And by the way, I'm just going to tell you, especially sons in the room, young sons in the room, listen to me. I want you to help dad out. Because every time you get in trouble, we get in trouble. I'm just telling you, there's been more times where I've gotten in trouble, more trouble than my son for something that he did. Help Help your dad out. I know you might think you're helping mom, but you're really helping dad. It's, hard, it's a hard life. I, like, we need to be fearful in certain situations. What Paul is saying, like, I can stand and face death for the cause of Christ. Because I know. Why does he, why does he say that? Because, like, to die for him is gain. To be with Jesus is, is the best thing that he can imagine in his life. And so his eternal focus on his imminent fear, on his imminent circumstances, on what's around him is so strong that it doesn't matter what they do to him. 
the Romans, the Jews, it doesn't matter to him. Now, what he's asking is in the moment of death, like, am, am I going to be courageous in that? I think we got to be people of courage. I think we just, I think the church has been afraid. I think we're afraid to offend people. We're afraid to talk about the blood of Christ and the sin of humanity. We're afraid. Like, there's a balance, I know, but, man, we got to tell people. And I was talking to a pastor about this the other day, man, and I just don't think he got it. And, like, he was, he was kind of challenging me on some things. I'm like, look, man, if, if you don't help them understand their sin, they'll never understand the full grace of God. And if somebody, if, if I wanted to draw a crowd, I would tell them things that they wanted to hear, but I want to build a, a, a fellowship of disciples who understand the grace of God because they've embraced their sin, they've acknowledged their sin and their need for a Savior, and are amazed and blown away by the grace of God. That's who we are. And we need to be bold and courageous in that, no matter the consequences. Man. I just get so tired, right, of people acting like they have something to be afraid of when Jesus has won every, every battle we could ever face. He's already won it on the cross. We have nothing to fear, nothing. Even death, we have nothing to fear. And yet fear can cripple us as believers. Fear can cripple us as churches. Fear can cripple us as a movement trying to change the world for the cause of, of Christ and the power of the gospel to transform lives. Paul says we must be people of courage. We should follow Paul's example of courage. We choose what is necessary, not what is far better. Key point number three is this, is that we are committed to the work. Paul says if I'm to live in the flesh, then that means fruitful labor for me. Fruitful labor. Paul is determined to be somebody who's producing fruit. Now, in Paul's day... And in the days of Jesus and in their region and in their culture, the, the, the grape industry was huge, right? Because they subsisted on wine because water was, was not fresh water and good water was not always good to come by. So they subsisted on wine. And so this idea that they would grow grapes and they used grapes in a lot of their things that they made and ate. So it was the main fruit of the day. It was something that could be grown well in that region and in that culture. And so, you know, in... Um, the book of John, Jesus talks about God being the vine dresser and that Jesus is the vine, that we're the branches. And so if we're the branches in the vine, we are, our job is to produce fruit. Sometimes we think of ourselves as the vine when Jesus is really the vine. Sometimes we think of ourselves as the gardener, the vine dresser, the one who would come and who would prune and, and cut away what needs to be cut away and make sure that the vine itself is as healthy as it possibly can be and cut away the branches that aren't producing the fruit because that's what the gardener does. The branches that produce the most fruit bring pleasure to the gardener, bring glory to the vine. And that's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be those branches producing fruit for the kingdom of God, fruit of peace in our homes, fruit of loving uh, relationships that we have with each other, fruit of good relationships and upstanding integrity in our workplaces, fruit of sharing and, and opening ourselves up to share our story and the gospel hope that Jesus has given us with other people and allowing ourselves as a disciple of Christ to be making other disciples and leading other people to become disciples too. That, in essence, is what Paul is saying. The fruitful labor is him sharing the gospel with other people and then those people sharing the gospel with other people and then those people sharing the gospel with other people. 
That is the fruit of the gospel. That is the fruit of the kingdom. And so we have to be people that are doing that. Paul says, we, we, I'm committed to the work. In other words, if I'm going to be breathing, then I'm going to be doing something for the kingdom of God. If I'm going to be taking a breath, then I'm working for the kingdom of God. If you go read um, the end of the book of Acts about this imprisonment here, it literally says that Paul stayed there at his own expense. So it's not like our prisons today where they were bringing him food or whatever and they provided for all his needs. In other words, Paul had to kind of, under this house arrest, he had to figure out a way like, to make his ends meet and to meet all of his financial needs. So, so like this is a heavy burden on Paul. So Paul is existing for the kingdom of God at great sacrifice, especially when we know that Paul came um, probably from a family of some prominence because he was able to study under Gamaliel, which is one of the most prominent Jewish scholars, Jewish rabbis of his day. And Paul was also, as Saul, before he became a follower of Jesus, was also very involved in the Jewish leadership, the Jewish leadership structure, and he was moving in that. He was gaining more authority and more of a voice. And so for him to actually leave all that behind and be in a place where he's sitting in a prison with chains around him, taking care of his own self, facing what might be impending death, and him willing to stand, right? That, that Damascus Road experience that he had with Jesus must have been something else. Paul's committed to the work, probably like nobody else in history ever has been. Because followers of Jesus are sold out to the mission of the church. That's what we're about. If you want to know who we are, we're people who are sold out for the mission of the church. Like that, that should be something that you think about every day, the mission of the church. It should be something that you pray about every day as a follower of Jesus. You should think about that when you decide what to do with your money, when you decide what to do with your career, when you decide what to do with your relationships. The mission of the church should be at the front of your brain when you're making decisions, when you're going through life, because that's who we are. Here's what I want you to think about today. Number one, answer yourself this question. Am I sold out for the mission of the church? As a, as a follower of Jesus, am I sold out for the mission of the church? And if not, what needs to change in my life for me to get there? What's one step that I can take today to demonstrate my, my sense of calling to this and something new happening in my life? And I want you to ask this other question. What is the, what is the one thing that you know God has called you to, but fear is crippling you from taking a step forward? Because I know you've all got something. What is the one thing? Maybe you can identify one thing in your life right now that you are certain that if you really are honest that God has called you to this. Maybe it's to share your gospel story with somebody else. Maybe it's to to take action. Maybe it's to quit a job, take a job. Whatever it is that you know God has called you to do very clearly. Maybe it's to volunteer at a certain ministry or do something for somebody else. Whatever it is. And and you know, if you're honest, if you're honest, that the only thing that's keeping you from doing that is fear of rejection or fear of failure or fear of something else or fear of what somebody might think of you. And, and I want you to just pray against that fear today as we pray. 
and be willing to, to commit. Like in the, you got your gray card in front of you, the I have decided card. I want you to take that. I want you to write on here, I had decided to take action in this area. I had decided to set aside my fear in this area and be one of those unreasonable people for the kingdom of God. Would you stand with me? Let me pray for us. So as we sing, you know, if you want to pray about anything that's going on in your life, if you've got any struggle, you're always welcome to go and pray at the cross. That's an awesome place for you to go and just spend time with Jesus and focus on him and his sacrifice for you. I'll be over in front of the storyboard. If you want me to pray with you about anything, I'll be happy to do that um, and encourage you in any way that we can. Let's pray to God together. Father, as your people, forgive us for the moments where we've placed our own kingdom above yours. Forgive us when we've spent so much time and energy building up something that we want and something that we desire that we we find ourselves lacking and falling short of all the things that you would have us do to build up your kingdom. Father, forgive us in our selfishness with our time and with our finances, with our emotions, with our thoughts. Father, we, we repent before you this morning and we sacrifice to you knowing that that you've called us to be your people. Not only have you called us to it, but Father, you've given us great access to you because of your deep love for us and your abiding desire to live in relationship with us. I pray that we'll get ourselves right this morning in our prayer life. That we'll come to you in praise, that we'll come to you in connection and all the different ways in which we talked about this morning, that it won't just be about us having something that we need from you. Forgive us for that, Father. We pray also this morning, Father, for those in the room who need to take that courageous first step towards you, towards making Jesus the center of their life for the first time. I pray, Father, that you give people courage to do that. I pray that you help us to identify the things in our life that fear is just keeping us from. Father, help us to overcome our fear and to, to deal with the, 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 the things that are keeping us from moving forward and just... We're just staying put, Father, as a people. Let's don't do that, Father. Help us to to move forward. Give us courage. Help us to identify the things that are keeping us from being the people in the church that you want us to be and help us to get rid of that so that you can be glorified in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.